Hello, Internet friends. You don't know me, but I definitely know you. Andy didn't want to do this intro for Alex, so he strong-armed me, his darling wife, into doing it instead. This particular episode delves deep into the Netflix series BoJack Horseman and the Game of Thrones novels. So if you haven't caught up on it and you don't want to be spoiled, you have been warned. Thank you and happy listening. Hello, Internet friends. Welcome to Love Hate Relationship, uh, a opinionated podcast by opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell, and I'm Alex Ruiz. And as always, we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life in that order. Now, uh, Andy, before we got started, you told me that you were uh, falling down a giant hole of David Bowie. I kind of want to know a little more <laughs> about that. I mean, okay. <laughs> I, I only hesitate because. Uh, this might turn into the love and it's your turn for the love, but uh, no, David Bowie is to, to, to me to call David Bowie a rock star or a pop star is like calling Batman a cop. It is such a, such a limiting boxing in term for maybe my favorite musical performer ever. I have, always loved david bowie um ever since ever since i found out we had the same birthday um at a very young age i found out we were both born on january 8th and that kind of intrinsically drew me to the man but i remember watching him in labyrinth and i remember my dad giving me the changes uh greatest hits album and i i was sunk hook line and sinker um I regularly listen to Bowie. I regularly cry to certain Bowie lyrics. That was actually what, uh, what, why I was talking on Twitter. Uh, he's got a line in ashes to ashes, which always like really gets to me. And I don't even know if it's that impactful of a line, but when he sings, I've never done good things. I've never done bad things. I never did anything out of the blue. I don't know why that just like pierces me. Um, so I love David Bowie. I miss him. I miss him so much. And I, I always get like happy just reveling in him, but then like melancholy that he's gone. And that's kind of where my headspace goes. I'm, I'm optimistically melancholy about life. (laughs) Oh, sweetie. I know what we're going to talk about today. So you talking about being melancholy about life is, oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess that actually fits. Um, oh yeah no that's i i completely by the way everyone i completely sprung that on andy he mentioned that to me like before we started recording as a just hey this is how i'm doing this is just (laughs) something that i'm up to and i was like yeah i'm gonna spring that on him because that sounds like fun yeah there's you know there's wading into the shallow end of the david bowie fandom and there's being in the deep end of the david bowie fandom and i am in the mariana trench of the david bowie fandom I enjoy that. If you were to put David Bowie up as a future love, I would certainly not have a single problem with that. Though, uh, do expect me to ask you about the Thin White Duke era. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, lock it in, people. Here's a preview. <laughs> I don't know if it'll be our next love. I don't know if it'll be a super love, if I can find someone else to talk about it with us. But uh, David Bowie is going on LHR. Okay. And I... I would support a triple a triple love special on David Bowie. Like I am all for that cuz I mean we that attack on Robin Williams as a topic that we had last time uh 
that was a blast, yeah. you know? Uh, and I feel like something like David Bowie gives us a lot to work with because there are so many problematic aspects to him, but he's just so damn good yeah, and wonderful yeah. and delightful, and there's so much awesomeness there, and... I think that'd be it. okay. Let's 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 mark this one down. Like that'll be <laughs> no. I'm I'm serious. Like let's put that one let's put that one down for at some point. Like I'm, clarion call. We'll we'll see what we can figure out. I I know we know David Bowie fans. Oh, absolutely. Okay, I'm I'm etching it in stone. I'm casting it in iron. <laughs> David Bowie, twenty twenty eighteen. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, I mean, it's better than some prospects we've got. Uh, uh, Alex, uh, do you want to tell the lovely people where they can find our, our show that they are listening yes. to? Yes. Uh, so for reference, everyone, I know that um, for all of you, the show's been out for a couple of months. Uh, for us, like two episodes are out. We're gearing up to release episode three. Uh, and I now have places where I can say, go follow us. So you can absolutely search for us. Let's uh, just search love-hate relationship. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play. We're on Stitcher. We're on TuneIn Radio, which I've mentioned this before. We are only on TuneIn Radio so that my mother can listen to us because <laughs> it's the only radio app that she, like, uses. Uh, I love you, Mom. I don't know if you're listening to this right now. I'm sorry about how much I swear. Hi. Not really, but I'm sorry. Um, Andy says hi as well. Uh we are also, uh, we are technically on Spotify. Uh, I'm trying to get episodes updated on that. For some reason, Spotify takes a lot longer to update episodes than other stuff. Everything else takes like 24 hours at the most. Yeah. Some of them only like 8 or 10 or 12, but Spotify takes forever for some reason. They late to the podcast uh, game. Yeah, but I mean... You guys, just whatever you listen, I listen to stuff on Stitcher because I'm a nerd. You know, some people, those of you who have iPhones or people who are like Google aficionados the way other people are iPhone aficionados or Apple aficionados, like just find us. We are available. We would love for you to listen to us. Absolutely. So subscribe. Yeah. So I got that out of the way kind of awkwardly. Because I didn't want to do it awkwardly at the end, but I did it awkwardly at the front. So, so uh, you want to get started, Andy? <laughs> yes, let's move into something that should be a little less awkward. I feel like we've got a lot to get through today. Uh, even if this isn't one of our longest episodes, I think this is going to be our nerdiest. Because we've done a pretty good job in the past of balancing like pop culture and something non-pop culture. And this time... Uh, I basically just decided that we were going to double down on the pop culture, but I'm excited for it. So Alex, without further ado, let's get into the love. All right. So my turn to pick the love and folks for our love today, I have brought you the wonderful, the fantastic, the critically acclaimed, the excellent Bojack Horseman. Yes. So, uh, little bit of back most most of you i assume are probably at least passing passingly familiar with bojack horseman even if you've never sat down and watched through uh all four seasons as of the date of this airing uh season five should be coming out in about 10 days uh that'll be on my birthday by the way september the 14th what uh oh thank you i'll be 29 i'm I'm a third of the way dead (laughs) uh so quick overview because i have a lot to talk about with bojack horseman i have a very particular take which is 
uh, largely influenced by some YouTubers, but uh, we'll get into that. But quick overview on BoJack Horseman. Well, actually, no, before the overview, Andy, you're a BoJack fan, correct? Absolutely. I've seen every episode. I think, you know, there's this trend of cartoons for adults that is kind of popular right now. And I think BoJack was one of the first and it's one of the best. Um, I am an absolute BoJack fan. Wait, you think Bojack, like, South Park's been around for 20 years. Right, right. Like, South Park was definitely, um, uh, was before its time in that regard. And I know, uh, I mean, Adult Swim's been doing stuff for ages. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I'm trying to come up with other examples. Uh, it, it really seems like Bojack inspired, um, cartoons for adults that make you sad. I could see that. So... BoJack Horseman was created by Raphael Bob Waxberg and premiered on Netflix back in 2014. Uh, It is an animated black comedy following the titular character who was voiced by Will Arnett, uh, a former 90s sitcom actor struggling through depression, addiction, severe nostalgia, narcissism, and self-destructive tendencies, among other issues. Uh, The show's universe, also, uh, if the thumbnails have ever confused you, if you've never seen the show, the show's universe includes anthropomorphic animals who kind of move through the world in pretty much the same capacity as humans. And when I say, like, it's just not commented on. Sometimes they create jokes or puns. Uh, I'm sure we'll discuss a few of those, Andy. But generally speaking, I mean, animals... These anthropomorphic humanoid animals are basically treated the same way, not exactly the same way. An imperfect comparison would be to say that they are like other races. Yeah, I would agree with that. Of people. You know, the uh, the undersea ones have their own community and um they're yeah it's not like they're second class citizens or anything. The the in-show universe just had animal people that come up at the same yeah. time. Yeah. One of the characters, Mr. Peanut Butter, uh, voiced by the incomparable Paul F. Tompkins, is from a place called... He's a Labrador retriever. Uh, he's from an area called the Labrador Peninsula, which is just populated with Labradors just all over the place. This is the kind of setups and situations you often have. So Bojack is a horse, Um other characters involved, uh, Amy Sedaris voices his on-again, off-again girlfriend slash manager or agent, Princess Carolyn, uh, who is a catwoman. <laughs> uh, he has his layabout uh, best friend slash roommate, Todd, who is voiced by Aaron Paul for all of the uh, Breaking Bad fans out there. Yeah, bitch! Magnets! Oh! You have Mr. Peanut Butter, who we mentioned, who's kind of just a dim-witted oaf, yeah, yeah. but really adorable and wonderful. Yeah. Uh, you have Diane, you have Diane Nguyen, who is uh, voiced by Allison Brie, that's right. who is uh, Mr. Peanut Butter's, I guess, a, wife. I mean, by by the second season, they get married. Yeah, girlfriend slash wife. Uh, she is a confidant of Bojack's. She's she's a writer in L.A., so she goes through the myriad of jobs that L.A. writers have. Like she she's Gojack's Bojack's ghostwriter, and then she becomes a a tweet ghostwriter, um, <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah, there's a huge supporting cast of just 
random characters who come in for various stints, but that's kind of the core cast, right? Am I missing anyone from that core cast? I'm talking about throughout the show, not for, like, a particular season yeah, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, no, really, that's about it. Every Everyone else, the next biggest um, players in the show are uh, come in on a season-by-season basis or, or are, like, more and more character players in the in the overall story but no that's the main cast yeah so um obviously it's really hard to talk about bojack horseman significantly for anyone who hasn't really watched the show but andy i kind of wanted to just you know take a few minutes and just talk to you about what some of your favorite character stories or individual episodes or characters in general from the show are just to kind of give an idea of this universe that could be main core characters uh, expanded cast, particular episodes or storylines or things that they play with. Yeah, I think that's a delightful idea. And I do want to say, I think that this is a pretty broad, or or not broad, but I think a lot of people are, know the show and know what we're going to talk about, you know. Um, Bojack came out in 2014 and that was like the year that Netflix was pumping out like House of Cards and Bojack and um... Oh, there was one other, but like it's one of these shows that really helped cement Netflix as a content producer uh, and let them get to where they are nowadays, where they can make summer blockbuster flops. And, you know, every third show is is a Netflix show and they have their their nails in Marvel. And, and you know, this this was a, a cornerstone to the Netflix content empire. So I think it's very popular. Um, yeah. But when I think of BoJack, you know, it's it's a very dark black comedy. It's very melancholic. It's it's about watching people destroy themselves. At least that's like how I would classify it. Um, but for all of that, it is very funny. And some of my favorite stuff includes like like the animal puns. The writing is impeccable. In episode two, you get Neil McBeal, the Navy SEAL, who's voiced by Patton Oswalt, and, and <laughs> gets in a, uh, a grocery store altercation with Bojack. And when he gets stressed out, he starts SEAL barking. <laughs> Um, stuff like uh, you you have Lenny Turtletop as a turtle, Quentin Tarantula, voiced by J.K. Simmons, who is incredible. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, I love him even more now. Um, uh, Quentin Tarantulino, um, um, the uh, Pinky Penguin, who is the the representative from Penguin Publishing. Like the the writing is so silly and funny but does it so well you know there's uh one of the later main characters is uh ralph stilton who is a mouse who um is romantically involved with princess carolyn and when he uh proposes to her he asks could you would you with a mouse like like stuff like that is is really silly but it's also really funny um, my favorite joke in all of Bojack is it, it's not even a big thing, but it's it, it, you have to be paying attention. Uh, there's a part where a one of those double decker buses is going through Hollywood, and uh, it's it's clearly supposed to be like a tour of the of the um, a tour of Houses of the Stars, but on the bus it's written sure, sure. tour of famous YouTubers' houses. And it's making fun of how uh, it seems like YouTubers are the only ones moving to L.A. anymore. And that's so funny to me. Yeah. No, I love that. You you mentioned um, Penguin Publishing. 
So I just got done. Wa- I-, I had watched the entire series, and I showed it. I rewatched it, showing it to uh, Stephanie for the first time. Uh, listeners, Stephanie Renee Johnson, who was our guest on last episode. Join with Jake and the Neverland Pirates. Uh, she and I watched through the entire thing, and like something, ab- ab- she really latched onto that Penguin Publishing sure. joke, like. <laughs> Penguin Publishing is populated entirely by penguins. By the way, Penguin Publishing is regularly just, like, going down the tubes yeah. <laughs> throughout that entire season. Like, like the, the book agent, who, again, is a literal penguin, is talking about how, like, he and his family are, like, getting ready to live inside of a box, and they're waiting on BoJack's book because it might be the only chance they have to save the organization. So... I, I, I mean, right, and and the idea of hinging your hopes on BoJack for anything is is funny in its own right. Uh, yeah, my my yeah. other favorite thing, and then I'll I'll happily turn the table to you. Um, a, a recurring bit through the show is BoJack is friends with Margot Martindale, who uh, a lot of people <laughs> a lot of people might know from uh, Justified, and, and and she's in a in, in a huge thing in the show. She's commonly referred to as character actress Margot Martindale. Um, like they literally refer to her as that all of the time. Right. And and she is in canon the woman Margot Martindale, but she's also like a psycho and a bank robber and and like steals a boat and crashes it into a a, a, a tanker. Love character actress Margot Martindale is in police custody tonight for her role in a failed bank robbery. And. It, it, like that's the wackiness. This is still a cartoon um, for as much as it has its uh, inflective uh, deep moments. And as much as it has its, it's totally messed up moments, it's still a cartoon. It's still as wacky, serious, uh, wacky, non-serious yeah. stuff. Yeah. And, and we'll get into those deep moments. Um, but some of my favorite, just random things that they do. And, and they're not random per se, but you can tell like, I try to picture the writer's room of BoJack Horseman regularly, and it's so... I, I don't know where someone comes up with some of these ideas. Guys, J.D. Salinger has an arc on this show. Actual real-life author, actual real-life deceased author, <laughs> they posit that J.D. Salinger faked his own death they discover, like, he gets discovered and convinced to come to Hollywood, called Hollywood at the time, because, for a canonical reason, because Bojack steals the D from the Hollywood sign, and then for the rest of the show, everyone refers to it as Hollywood, and no one questions it. But J.D. Salinger fakes his death, is discovered, comes to Hollywood... And to pitch a TV show, and everyone's thinking, like, he's going to be, he's going to pitch a giant, like, Catcher in the Rye-style, Rye commentary on existence, and he pitches a game show where celebrities <laughs> answer trivia questions. Celebrities! Do they know stuff? It's, I think it's called Hollywood Stars and Celebrities, Do They Know, What Do They Know? Do They Know Things? Let's Find Out. Right. That is the title of his show, and he treats it like a high art masterpiece. <laughs> and it's the most ridiculous thing you can possibly imagine and it's wonderful like just just it sounds stupid when i say it aloud but if you're invested in this show from the beginning 
you don't really question it. They build this universe so cleanly and so perfectly that all of this ridiculosity just kind of fits together and you buy in. It's not a show you can really jump into. It was really made for that Netflix binge model. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it, it is such a credit to the writer's room that, like, they they keep the running joke of Hollywood just becomes Hollywood for pretty much the entirety of the show. I think he steals the D in season one, and in season five it's still Hollywood. Uh, anytime the yeah. humpback reporter whale is... Uh, Played by Keith Olbermann, played, played by, by Keith Olbermann, and he is the the L.A. news anchor. Um, anytime he's doing a report, if you pay attention and if you pause and you you look at like the bylines growing across the stage, it's always something nonsensical and wacky and insane. Um, you know, Amy Sedaris, to her credit, uh, pulls off increasingly insane tongue twisters that like i i'm not even going to attempt to do do to prepare the press release portnoy finds joy in hoi polloi boy toy but but like they're they're funny and goofy and silly and wacky and i think the show you can youtube smash cuts of them and they are just fun to watch right just in general absolutely and i think the show needs that to balance out the rest of it yeah um other things that i really just like appreciate um mr peanut butter is wonderful um i i will probably talk about i'll talk about mr peanut butter a lot um in the latter section of this but i i love paul f Tompkins. i i could listen to paul f Tompkins, you know narrate somebody eating a bowl of cheerios <laughs> like honestly He's he's wonderful, and his performance is mis- like Mr. Peanut Butter is this character who, in the f- I think it's the third season, he runs for governor of California, and triggers a special election by challenging the incumbent governor to a ski race, and he doesn't know Mr. Peanut Butter does not know how to ski, and his whole premise for doing this is. He kind of wants people to like him. Like, he realizes that he's kind of good at public speaking, and it's a running joke that Mr. Peanut Butter kind of, because he's just a nice, charming guy, falls ass-backward into a bunch of success. And then afterwards, when he just kind of realizes, oh, I don't think I actually want to be governor. That doesn't sound like fun. You know what? You can be governor. It's totally fine with me. In fact, I'll help you get elected, because my ex-wife, Jessica Beale, is now running for governor which, by the way, Mr. Peanut Butter's <laughs> ex-wife is Jessica Beale in this show, and Jessica Beale eats Zach Braff at one point. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say Jessica Beale has her own arc, but that works too. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... And again, like, if you've never seen this show, it sounds like I'm describing something truly just incomparably stupid and silly. But in-universe holy shit it works like it really freaking works yeah i think it's easy to buy into and once you're bought in you're willing to accept the insanity of of, of everything um yeah to the show's credit for sure yeah absolutely and i mean again this show tackles some really dark themes and, and i think this is this might be a good spot to kind of transition into some of that um 
it always does it with some comedy, though admittedly in like the last season there are a couple of episodes that are uh how should I put this? Traumatizing? Yeah, there's some kind of traumatizing. There's some messed up shit. Like what I think it does it kind of for jokes in the first couple of seasons, but by season three and four, once it, you you know, the show is going to drop a hammer and it keeps managing to make that devastatingly impactful. You know, we didn't talk about any of the main characters in, uh, well, you talked about Mr. Peanut Butter, but we didn't talk about any of the other characters in our love because they are all so broken, destructive people that, are finding just newer and newer ways to completely ruin their lives. You know? uh, Yeah. So, so do you want to get into some of those? Yeah. I mean, okay. So in, in descending order, I mean, you watch a character like Todd. Todd, amazingly, is one of the few examples I've ever seen of an openly asexual character on television. Right, right, right. Uh, and Todd is constantly struggling with it. And Todd, much like Mr. Peanut Butter, is kind of the dim-witted oaf character. Uh, but, you know, you do see him struggle with the idea that Bojack betrays him uh, at one point. He is dealing with a very awkward sexuality that he doesn't really have the language or education to understand. The first time someone calls him an asexual, he thinks he's being insulted. Yeah, and I, you know, they they managed to really um, take a character who quite literally sat around not doing much of anything for a while and delve into giving Todd an actual character. And I think making him ace was a great way to do that. And it becomes a, it, it becomes not like a stereotypical defining feature of him, but it becomes a massive struggle for him for a while. And then he gets over it and moves on to the next thing and accepts his own asexuality and is able yeah, to, and he starts on. going to ace support groups. And like he, at the end, he meets a person who asks him out specifically because he's ace and she's ace and she reads him. She reads that he's ace and she's like, I'm ace too. Here's my card. I, 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 I'm asking you yeah. out. Give me a call anytime you're, you're ready for it. Like, that's the, that's the end of his storyline at the end of the last season. Uh, so we're assuming that'll get picked up again next season. But, like, that's a really meaningful thing to kind of watch him struggle through. Yeah. Uh, you, you see Mr. Peanut Butter and Diane specifically. Like, their marriage is fascinating because Mr. Peanut Butter is always this kind of dim-witted, happy-go-lucky guy who, you know, admittedly he has dark moments where he, you know, he realizes that not everyone has a philosophy like his. He has to deal with the potential of his brother dying at one point when he finds out his brother's mm-hmm. sick. But also his marriage is so tenuous because Diane is constantly dealing with this existential angst where she doesn't understand why it doesn't matter how successful she is professionally. It doesn't matter how good her, the day-to-day life of her marriage is. She can't be happy. She just can't. And it's not like clinical depression. It's like... A dissatisfaction. Yeah. And, it's, and Diane is constantly coded as being this hyper-intelligent person who recognizes, you know... Every, Diane is very woke. Diane comes from a very difficult family background like she was the single daughter 
of a slew of Bostonian boys who treated her like shit, yeah. who honestly just tortured her for her for their own amusement. And there's an episode where you meet all her brothers, and yeah, they're kind of horrible. It's nice that years later we can all laugh about this. Yep, my therapist thinks the same thing. They expect her to do everything for them. Uh, like, her father dies, and she goes to pay her respects, and they con her into basically planning the whole funeral, which they decide not to even attend without telling her, because they just decided that, you know, it'd be better if they just, you know, watched a ball game instead, that that's what their dad would really want. And you see that it's not just in Diane's imagination. She had a horrible childhood, and she has this angst about what her purpose in life is, and that's a theme that the show really dives into. Uh, and I don't want to go into that immediately because I do want to mention Princess Carolyn's mm. arc, which I think is heartbreaking yeah. um, because she is a workaholic who kind of wakes up in her own middle age and realizes that she's wasted most of her life, quote unquote, on a terrible relationship with Bojack a lot of the time. She, wast- she was his on-again, off-again girlfriend for what, like 15 years, I think yeah. they say? She, the only thing that seems to give her any joy is is being a workaholic, but she also ostensibly wants a family and doesn't know how to have a healthy relationship. And, you know, the, the thing with, and, and she gets pregnant and suffers a couple of miscarriages on the show. Mm-hmm. And it shows this. It shows her dealing with it. And... She's at the point, because she's also had several miscarriages before the show. She's very business-like about it, almost. And it's tragic to watch. Yeah, you know, at the end, like, like her relationship with Ralph, he is such a understanding person, for the most part. Um, you know, it really kind of gift-wraps a potential happiness for her, and she turns it down there are some extenuating factors that without getting too much into the lore of the show um you know there are a couple reasons but i really feel like the the princess carolyn is so tragic especially in this last season because she had the opportunity for real happiness as she perceived it and at the last moment at the midnight hour threw that all away and decided to dive head first into back into work and be and becoming a manager again and the thing that she spent three seasons griping and grousing and hating and then feeling like no this is the only way i can be happy is to be this person and the biggest example of this kind of deep dive into these dark emotions is bojack himself yes. Obviously. The, the piece de resistance. Yeah. So Bojack's Bojack has several arcs throughout the show. There's one season where it's all about him getting his memoir written, and Diane very much paints this portrait of him that's very real, and he doesn't know how to handle it because he's kind of coasted through life on the narcissism of his own celebrity because he was famous in the nineties. And he still got money from that, and he still got fame from that, and he's still, you know, fostering relationships from that and partying from yeah. that and and the rug gets ripped out from under him he gets a movie he gets his dream movie role to play play his childhood hero secretariat yeah and it's kind of destroyed around him and he can't handle that he can't handle the fact that when it's not exactly the way he wants it and it doesn't give him the gratification it doesn't naturally give him the meaning in life that he wants he shuts down about it. There's a season of where he gets an Oscar campaign for that same movie, 
And he thinks that giving an Oscar will give his life meaning. And spoiler alert, it super doesn't. Mm-hmm. Like, at all. And and he's the quest throughout the show... No, Sorry, no. go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, he... Throughout the show, we see him con- consistently uh, run away from his problems, consistently leave town with no uh, no no notice for months at a time to try and go find happiness, um, screw up that happiness where he is. You know, the the absolute darkest moment of the show, in my opinion, is uh, when he finds he tracks down a, a, an old love interest of his. Um, who uh, Charlotte, who is who was his best friend's girlfriend back in the day, but they like had sparks. He tracks down Charlotte in New Mexico, kind of imposes himself to live with them for a couple of months, uh, puts the moves on Charlotte. And when he's turned down, uh, then puts the moves on Charlotte's daughter and gets caught and and gets a shotgun pointed at his face and gets told get the fuck out of my house by somebody who was you know one of the most important people in his life absolutely and i mean i don't know if i call that the darkest i think season four probably has the darkest moments as we dive into like his family history well sure yeah but but that's but that's it's honestly just shades of shades of black at that point because and he keeps finding new way he keeps finding ways to add another coat of paint to that like that is that is the worst thing bojack is constantly falling down and falling down a bottle and then some miraculous cartoonish uh chain of events happens to bring him back up and you know by season five we just know that he is going to keep falling down and it is going to keep being a problem yeah now in the best interest of time because i see we're 35 minutes yeah, i told almost, you um, I told you this would be yeah. a long one <laughs> I, it's all good it's all good uh, i wanted to get to the point that like i really wanted to talk to on this and and i owe a debt of gratitude to uh i want to shout them out uh wisecrack the the youtube channel which offers philosophical dissections of various media including movie and tvs um they have a couple of videos about BoJack Horseman, and in particular, there's one where they called the philosophy of BoJack Horseman, where a lot of this discussion, uh, a lot of what I'm about to talk about, comes from. So I want to give them full shout outs. I'll link to them in the show Absolutely. notes. Um, but uh, the thing that really hooks me about BoJack Horseman is its portrayal of the philosophy of existential nihilism, which is a philosophy that I. Uh, find incredibly interesting and is a lot of uh, my a lot of the basis for a lot of my personal philosophy. Uh, so very quickly put, uh, the irresponsibly short explanation uh, of existential nihilism and absurdism uh, is that life itself carries no inherent meaning. The term is literally existence precedes essence. You are born before you have purpose. Uh, we're born with no inherent purpose, and so we have to devise one for ourselves. Uh, Absurdism, uh, which is a certain branch of this kind of philosophy, argues that most of us live our lives distracted by questions of survival or pleasure or the material world. But that once we have the time and intelligence to face it, our choices, once we see the inherent meaninglessness of life, that all those distractions just fail to keep us from noticing before, we basically have three choices. We can kill ourselves, 
We can embrace uh, religion or go back to our distractions. And absurdist philosopher Albert Camus, who I won't go into great detail on, uh, he called this philosophical suicide. Uh, or we, quote, embrace the absurd, and we choose to live and be happy in spite of the realization. His metaphor for this was the myth of Sisyphus. Sisyphus rolls a boulder up a mountain every day, rolls back down, he repeats the process. Sisyphus becomes the absurd hero the day that he decides, I have to subject myself to this meaningless task, this meaningless existence, day in and day out. I will choose to be happy in spite of the fact that this is all meaningless bullshit that I shouldn't have to deal with, but it's all that I have. When, when he embraces the absurd, Sisyphus becomes the absurd hero. And a lot of us kind of want Bojack to be the absurd hero here, although I don't know that we necessarily do. Um, and this, this philosophy is all throughout Bojack Horseman. When you think about distractions, Bojack, Princess Carolyn, and Todd are all constantly seeking distractions in work, or in relationships, or in substances, uh, to avoid that existential angst. How many times does Todd say, when someone comes up with a harebrained idea, or Todd comes up with a business idea, he goes, Hooray! A task! Or, or just something to distract himself with, and Princess Carolyn's constant work, and Bojack's substance abuse. Uh, Bojack and Diane are constantly trying, trying and failing to achieve happiness and meaning through their professional successes. Diane, it doesn't matter how many books she writes. It doesn't matter if Bojack wins an Oscar. Life remains meaningless. Happiness eludes them. Diane's marriage is wonderful, but she doesn't know how to be happy. And everything fails to give them meaning. Mr. Peanut Butter and Todd are arguably too stupid to confront the angst, except when they're absolutely forced to which could potentially make them heroes of the absurd, but they also are constantly distracting themselves. Mr. Peanut Butter is happy to work with Todd on these schemes, to run for governor so that people will love him, which is exactly the kind of stunt you expect from BoJack. You know, and the show nails this philosophy over and over and over again. It's that never matters what any of these characters do. Life continues to remain meaningless. They continue to fail to achieve the happiness they want because they are too intelligent to not notice what's going on. It's kind of a post-religion area, the L.A. of BoJack Horseman. Like, There's not really any religious philosophy there to offer the kind of distractions that Camus talked about. So what are they left with? They're left with their own existential misery, really. Yeah. And this philosophy is very meaningful to me. And the fact that I see it, like, portrayed right here on this TV show is so poignant and powerful. And, yes, it's very depressing, especially if you don't ascribe to the idea of existential nihilism or absurdism. But... It's so powerful for me to just watch that in a show that is hugely popular. Yeah, you know, there's we've we've kind of danced around this before. Um, millennials and millennial culture and the young people of today, I think, are becoming increasingly nihilist. There is a, you know, it, it's become a meme in itself at this point um, for people to be like. Memes are the only thing keeping me going. 
um, to to mm-hmm. poke fun at these silly picture distractions being the only thing that make life worth living has in itself become a meme. Um, and I think I, I did not, I was not familiar with this philosophy. Ah. I was, I was not sure. familiar with the absurdism. Um, yeah. It's not exactly taught in like sure. public, <laughs> public high school. This is, this is crap I learned all on my own years after I finished formal education. Sure, sure. But to hear you um, and, and and to hear Wisecrack um, talk about this in relation to the show, it's overwhelmingly obvious that the writers had this viewpoint in mind while writing it, and they wanted to put it out into the world. Um, and I'm, I don't have a problem with that by any means. I do want to emphasize that in both existential nihilism and absurdism, uh, as well as in BoJack Horseman, things are not hopeless. You know, it's the... Sure, a lot of these episodes end on tremendous down notes. Horrible down notes. It's an incredibly sad, depressing show, but I feel like at the cap, and having just rewatched the entire series, I feel like at the cap of all this, there's always this hope, and it's a hope that exists in absurdism and existential nihilism, which is we do have the freedom to create our own sense of meaning, to find happiness and create it for ourselves. The problem is when we try and find it in these meaningless distractions, and we don't just embrace the inherent meaninglessness and decide to forge our own purposeful meaning. Bojack offers that a lot of the time. It's just a matter of who takes up on it and who doesn't. And and who can stick with it, you know? I mean, Bojack, for all the times he falls down, has picked himself up at the end of every season. Um, And, you know, I was talking about how, at this point, it seems hopeless to assume that he would ever... Uh, actually find happiness but the show keeps positing the notion that he can and and i think that is there is something hopeful in that i think that is a hopeful message for as as broken as these people are they are able to pick themselves back up and life keeps going on yeah and i mean that's that's a message within the philosophy. You can existential nihilism should not be treated as this giant, you know, this reductive, depressing, hyper depressing hopelessness. Hmm. That's what cosmic nihilism is, and that's what you watch Rick and Morty for. Yeah. Which is the subject of another uh, Wisecrack video where they compare the cosmic nihilism of Rick and Morty and the existential nihilism of Bojack. And really, it does kind of come down to hope, you know? Uh, We are meaning-seeking creatures, as are the characters in this show. And as such, with the ability to create that meaning, there is hope. There is a chance at happiness. You just have to, you know, take that leap of faith to pursue it. Uh, I feel like Todd is kind of closing in on that, especially because we're now a season and a half away since the last time Todd has lived with Bojack. Like, he saw Bojack once in the last season, and he straight up tells him, like, I haven't seen you in a year, and that's kind of been working for for me. Todd takes control of his own happiness, or at least he takes a step towards it. And and that's, that's exceedingly hopeful. Uh, Princess Carolyn kind of dances around it back and forth, and we'll see what ends up happening with that. But I feel like she 
seems to be inching towards that a sense of meaning and happiness. Uh, Diane and Mr. Peanut Butter take a step backward from where they were the last couple of seasons. So I'll be really interested to see where their arc goes in the next season. And Bojack's just fucking up and down constantly. But by the end <laughs> of the last season, you know, he, he suddenly discovers that he has more family and family that he really, truly cares about. Yeah, Holly Hawk. I'm not going to spoil... Yeah, I'm not going to spoil how the whole Hollyhock thing goes because that is actually, even though the season came out over a year ago, like I, I highly it's it's such a good revelation that I highly recommend anyone who hasn't seen it go yeah. for it. But suffice it to say, BoJack has some meaningful relate some additional meaningful relationships that he can continue to foster, even though he's you know destroyed he's destroyed his relationship with Todd, he's rectifying his relationship with Princess Carolyn. Diane and Mr. Peanut Butter are always kind of there, kind of not. He's, you know, that that's been back and forth. But the point is, like, there's there's room for hope in these characters, and there's room for hope in this philosophy. And if you watch BoJack Horseman, you'll understand this philosophy. You'll understand me a little bit better. Uh, I promise you. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I really wanted to kind of use this show. I love this show on its own merits, but I did also really want to use it as this jumping off point to talk about this particular philosophy. And I have I think it's great. talked about it extensively. So, uh, yeah, that is my love, BoJack Horseman. I highly recommend it to each and every one of you. Uh, if you have a Netflix subscription or if you can steal one, uh, please watch it. Uh, four seasons, fifth season comes out uh, September the 4th. It's worth binging. All right. Yeah. Yeah, straight up. No, yeah, thank you, man. This was uh, this was a big part of what LHR was always supposed to be in my mind is taking a thing and really, really delving into it and breaking da- breaking it down and talking about what it means to us. So I think this was a great uh, example of that. Forty five minutes later, the other thing LHR is for is for letting us uh, crack our heads open and do some hate rants, and I've got one today. All right, let's get into it. All right, so my hate uh, for this episode is uh, is the Arthur yeah, the Arthur the author George R R Martin. For anyone who doesn't know, he is the man who wrote Game of Thrones. He is the reason HBO has what is going to go down as one of the greatest TV shows of all time, and I hate his Santa ass for. The fact that I have to talk about Game of Thrones as the TV show before the book series. So let me get Nerd. In. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> let me get into this. Um, my core hatred for George R. R. Martin is the notion I have that he is a lazy, greedy bastard. Um, who decided to stop working on the thing that made him famous because a a newer, shinier thing came along. And I am, of course, talking about the Song of Ice and Fire book series, a.k.a. Game of Thrones. Sure. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll skimp on the history lesson a little bit. The man was born in September uh, 1984 in New Jersey, um, and his childhood was very closed off and isolated. So he read a lot and he had a, this real voracious imagination and, and a wanderlust and, and loved books. Uh, and he, he, uh, nurtured that love of books and became a writer. Um, 
he became a writer and uh, started pushing out sci-fi novels back in the 70s, but the problem was that they were all critical failures. None of them were particularly good or particularly well-received, so he started writing uh, for TV. And a couple of his TV credits include the 1985 Twilight Zone remake TV show, uh, Max Headroom, and and this made me laugh, uh, the Beauty and the Beast TV show that starred Ron Perlman. This is where the wealthy and the powerful do you remember that one? Okay. Where, uh... Uh, so, so that was before our time. That aired before I was even born, I'm pretty sure. But I have seen it in reruns. It is awful. Ron Perlman has a lion face and lives in the sewers. It's so terrible. But <laughs> anyway, um, around 1991, George R. R. Martin hit a wall with this TV writing career and turned back to books. And he spent the next five years working on what would become Game of Thrones, the first uh, Song of Ice and Fire novel. Uh, so that came out in 1996. It was supposed to be a trilogy. And the more he wrote, the more he literally wrote. Um, where three books became five, which have now become seven, and five of them are currently out. Um, so I want to stress, the first book, season one of Game of Thrones, pretty much, uh, you know, it, it the book came out in 1996. And then his release schedule was 96, 99, 2000, 2005, and the last book um, came out in 2011. So there are still two books. Yeah, that 99 to 2000 is weird to me. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure the story is he wrote um, uh, the second and third books, and they were going to be one book, and it wound up being like 2,000 pages, so he just cut them in half and split them in the middle. That's how he was able to uh, release two books uh, in as many years. Um, but you okay. notice, okay. You notice it then took him five, then six... And now it's it's seven, and it's going to be at least eight years before the sixth book, uh, The Winds of Winter, comes out. Um, for whatever reason, the man has been taking longer and longer and longer to uh, to to push out his books, and and these were uh, very popular in their own right for for select nerds um, well before the HBO TV show came out. So it's not like he it's not like this wasn't already a legacy for him. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's taken him longer and longer and longer to write these books. Why is that? Well, the answer, pretty obviously, is the TV show. Um, the Game of Thrones TV show was conceptualized in 2006, and season one aired in 2011, the same year as the fifth book. Um, okay. it's been HBO has been pumping these out pretty regularly, uh, since then. And the eighth and final season of the show is coming out in fall of 2019, I believe. Um, mm. and so here's, here's where we get into my problem. HBO knew how to stick to a schedule. HBO had to stick to a schedule because Game of Thrones blew up and became, you know, the most popular product they they have offered since maybe The Sopranos. And it, maybe it's past The Sopranos at this point. I was never a Sopranos guy, so I can't speak to that. I know everybody loves Game of Thrones, the TV show. Khaleesi is one of the most popular girl names of 2016, for Christ's sake. <laughs> I, knew that would, okay. I knew that would get a laugh out of you. Um, All right. So... So so he stopped writing the books and and at this point the the books pat the sorry the show passed the books 
in terms of plot, in terms of what has actually happened in the story, the show surpassed the books uh, two seasons ago. So uh-huh. I heard about right, this. Right, right. It, it surpassed the books. It it the the plot moved on because HBO knew how to keep to a schedule and knew that they had time constraints. And George R. R. Martin basically said to the uh, show writers of Game of Thrones, "Okay, here's the ending for everybody." get them there how you will. Um, and that really sticks in my craw. That really bothers me as a bookworm. That really bothers me as somebody who read all five of his books over the course of like six months. I just, I tore through them in college. Each of these books is like a thousand pages. This was, this was a commitment on my part. Um, and I, I was absolutely that guy who kind of stuck my nose up at the TV show as soon as it became clear that they were changing plot details and uh, really, really stuck my 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 horse on the notion that George R. R. Martin was going to finish the books before the TV show ended so that I oh, I have all the plot knowledge and oh, I know what's going to happen. And I know that, oh, my God, he killed who? Um and uh, George R. R. Martin burned me for that. He burned me good. Burned you specifically, he, he, Andrew he, Richard. He Bowell. burned me specifically. He burned me, and he burned everyone else who was a dedicated Game of Thrones fan before the TV show. I really think that you know, it, the, the show the show is is immensely popular. I can't talk to that enough. I think that I don't need to. I think it, it speaks for itself. It's going to go down with lost and and with as as one of the most popular shows of all time and george r R. martin by my estimation and this really isn't me uh telling tales out of class he's in interviews basically said this in as many words he stopped writing the books because it got too hard and what wasn't too hard was instead becoming executive producer to the TV show and just letting other people do the work and telling the show writers, oh yeah, this, this, and this happens, and then they go ahead and write it, and then they go ahead and film it, and he gets to go on Conan and do the late night talk show circuit, and he gets to laugh about how much sex is in the TV show, and he gets to, to there, there's, there's this bit, I think it's Conan, or it's one of the talk shows, he's talking to Alfie Allen, who is the actor who plays Theo, on and he's like really ribbing him about oh man enjoy all the sex scenes while you can buddy because uh, and we didn't know this at the time but because i'm going to castrate your character and and turn him into this tortured wretch for a season um and i'm sure that's a lot more fun than dealing with your publisher's deadlines i'm sure that is a lot easier the man is getting up there in age i'm sure it's a lot better for his health but i feel betrayed and i think anybody who was a fan of the books has a right to feel betrayed you know compared to some of the other fantasy giants compared to uh robert jordan who is the guy who wrote the wheel of time uh robert jordan pumped out a book every two or three years until he died. And the story wasn't over when he died, but he, he, he left the manuscript for other people to continue uh, doing this. So the man every two or three years for like, for like 20 years pumped out a wheel of time book. They're just as big as the game of Thrones books. Um, yeah. My, uh, my dear friend, my dear friend, David, Hey David, hey, David. how's it going? Uh, 
was a is I think still a huge Wheel of Time fan, and I remember him like pushing Redwall on me back in like middle school. I think. Oh, Redwall. Uh, oh. Yeah, he's he's a huge fan of that particular series. He talk he still talks about it actually. Um, but yeah, yeah. okay, I, I'm familiar and, with and that. And the one. Wheel of Time is it, it, it's great. It's it's maybe not as infamous as Game of Thrones, but I I would think that it is just as important to people and and has just as much of an epic fantasy scope. Um, or you know, compare it to Brian Jacques, who pumped out so many Redwall books, and those were a little smaller and and more intended for children, but that doesn't change the fact that the man was able to keep writing them and keep coming up with stories. And he didn't have to split his book in half because it was getting too long. Um, okay. Okay. My, sorry. My bad. I thought Redwall was one of the wheel of time books. I, I, I have never read these. I'm not a fantasy guy, but like that's my Redwall. Bad. Okay. So no, uh, I'm going to school you real quick. Redwall is a series oh, of maybe like 20, 25 books. And they're all about um, these slightly anthropomorphic woodland critters. Um, and it's basically set in medieval England. So it's mice and hares and badgers who live in a castle and, and have a sword that is the equivalent to Excalibur and they're constantly fighting rats and bobcats and and it, it's it's great Redwall is uh thank you David for reminding me of Redwall <laughs> shit Redwall got me through middle school man. okay okay um, okay. Um, okay so so Brian Shock's Redwall series Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series um I'm a huge fan of R.A. Salvatore and the Dritt Stewart and Forgotten Realm books and he's been making those since 1986 and it's consistent there's like 20 of them um, or even um, a, a, an idol of George R. R. Martin's is J.R.R. R. Tolkien. The the R.R. in J. Uh, George R. R. Martin is because of J.R.R. R. Tolkien. He he did that as as a homage. Um, okay. You know, it took it, it took J.R.R. R. Tolkien twelve years to write the Lord of the Rings, but he wrote it all. And then he took a span of three years to publish them one after the other, after the other back in the fifties when fantasy wasn't a popular genre and it was a lot harder to do this. Um, Mm -hmm. So all of that to say, I find George R. R. Martin's legacy as the creator of game of Thrones is cemented and he's always going to have the red wedding and he's always going to be the man who made it unsafe to root for your main character because the main character is probably going to die at some point. And he has that, but his legacy as a writer, um, I find lacking. And I think when push came to shove, Uh, He decided that putting in the work to finish these last two books um, before before the deadline, the hard deadline he set up for himself in a way, um, I think he decided that was too hard. And it would be easier to push the problem onto other people and revel in the highlights. And I, I take a real umbrage with that. And I... I want you to write... I must not tell lies. I really, that, that is why I hate George R. R. Martin. Okay. I have a couple things that I want to poke okay. this with. Uh, but uh, let, let, let me state up front for everyone. Uh, I'm not a Game of Thrones fan. Uh, I don't dislike it, really. 
I watched the first episode. I thought it was good. It was solid. I was like, okay, this is this is a good show. And then I didn't really feel terribly compelled to like watch the rest. I didn't have HBO at the time. I watched it at a friend's house. I have HBO now. Stephanie is a huge Game of Thrones fan. She watches it all the way through. I say that at some point I'll probably sit down and watch it. I don't feel overwhelmingly compelled to anytime <laughs> soon. I have the first, I actually do have the first book. It was, uh, there was a Kindle sale and it was like $1.99. Here's the first Game of Thrones book. Here's the first song, first book from A Song of Ice and Fire. And I was like, I have $1.99. Let me buy this and I'll read it at sure. some point. I have yet to read it. Uh, I'm not a big fantasy person in general. Again, I don't dislike it. I don't have any disrespect for it. Just, you know, generally not where I put a lot of my focus. So that's where I'm kind of coming from on this. I am not a fan. I'm not a hater. I'm just kind of like, eh, okay, that's okay. fine. What I'm interested in dissecting here uh, is, uh, and Andy, let me ask you, what do you feel is a creator's obligation to their audience or their fans. I feel like... In general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like the obligation is to entertain, inform, um, you know, depending on how broad you want to get, but to, to to entertain people or to make them think about a certain thing. You know, the, 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 the motivation of the BoJack Horseman writer's room was to get people subconsciously or not thinking about existential nihilism and absurdism, but to also laugh doing it. I think the the motivation of a creator should be to to entertain and to okay. to 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 finish your work really if possible. Okay. That and 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 that's valid. I'm not going to argue against that. I think that's one of those questions that doesn't really have a right or a wrong answer. I think it just has a personal answer for anyone who consumes any particular kind of art. So, I'm a writer. I, I write, I, I've been working on a novel, I went to graduate school for writing, I'm a poet, uh, I've published some, you know, non-fiction pieces. Uh, I, I like writing, it's fun for me. Uh, I, I will totally admit, uh, if you're ever, if you ever want to just get real annoyed at people comp complaining about their lives, uh, hop on writer Twitter or poet Twitter. <laughs> And just look at all the people who are like, oh, God, I hate writing. Why do I write? Because I hate it so much. Because it's everywhere. I loathe that. I think that's terrible. I think if you don't enjoy writing, just don't write. Period. Don't be a writer if you don't think writing is enjoyable or if you don't get anything out of it. You're just subjecting yourself to misery. I hear this story about how J.R.R. Martin, not J.R.R. Martin, George R.R. Martin came up with this concept and wrote these books. And I mean, like five books over the space of 15 years. So that averages to three books or, or a book every three years, yeah. right? Which is, I mean, that's good output for for a popular writer uh i'm i just straight not not maybe not in the fantasy genre um where you know the paperback market can really be a huge thing but he did average okay so for that for that 15 year period he averaged a book every three years yes. he didn't stick to that schedule but he averaged it and he's gonna be 70 in september yes. What if it's not fun anymore? That is a very valid question. You know, I, I in in really trying to focus my hate and focus and and 
refine and refract my my issue here i did think about this a lot it might not be fun anymore uh maybe when he made an agreement with hbo he either thought that he would be able to finish in time or uh he thought that the show wouldn't become what it's become i you know i i don't know that yeah uh i'm the first one to admit to you if i like i hope that I can publish something that some people will read. I hold no lofty ideas that, you know, I'll be Poet Laureate, that I'll be a bestseller. I, I, I don't write that kind of stuff generally. If I ever, I always say, if I ever write anything that makes any money, it'll probably be because I occasionally write horror. Because people actually pay money <laughs> for horror. Same thing here. People actually pay money for fantasy. Like, these are, genre, genre fiction actually does make yeah. some money. It's incredibly hard to break into, but it does actually legitimately make some money. So it's one of the few places where some people can actually make a little can actually make a living from. Uh, not nearly the way it used to be, but it, it's it's reasonably possible. I look at something like this. I imagine somebody you know who is pumping out these stories, and if I'm almost seventy and I've got this giant project on my shoulders and it's weighing on me and it's difficult and there's huge expectations and I have the opportunity to not I don't know I I'm not trying to talk you out of your hate I don't I don't want to make it seem no, no, like that's that. fine. this isn't like when this isn't like when you talked about esports and I was like Andy your hate's <laughs> done It'll happen to you. Uh, which, I, which I didn't actually say, and I don't actually think, but it's funny for the purposes of this statement. But I, I do have to admit, like, I, I, think about, I think about writing, and I do have this personal belief that if you don't... Li- like, I legitimately like writing. Mm. Uh, yeah, some days are hard. Some, especially, like, I don't necessarily enjoy editing a whole terrible amount and that's necessary i obviously don't enjoy getting rejected when i send stuff out for publication there's aspects of being a writer that legitimately aren't fun but the actual act of writing is enjoyable for me it's fun i like it i think about what would i do if i suddenly came into a stupid amount of money like a lottery winning or I sell a movie script for $2 million and it never gets made, which is a running gag that I've got going <laughs> on. And I think like, what, what would I do if I didn't have to work? I just, you know, I, I had all the time I want. Honestly, what I would do is read a shit ton of books, maybe start a band, weightlift, and write books. Sure. That's, that is literally what I would do with my day, day in and day out. Because that's that's the shit that gives my life meaning and enjoyment. Those are my distractions, and that that act of creation uh, is really really pleasurable and enjoyable for me. And I and I get a lot out of it. If I didn't enjoy writing, maybe because there was a lot of pressure on me, maybe because there, there's high expectations, maybe because I don't necessarily like one thing I legitimately fear would be if I ever did what Anthony Burgess did. You know, Anthony Burgess writes A Clockwork Orange. Anthony Burgess subsequently spends <laughs> the next three or four decades writing really smart, incredible novels yeah. that nobody gives a but shit it, about. Yeah, everyone only remembers A Clockwork Orange. Oh, it was gorgeousness and gorgeousity made flesh. 
which he wrote in his 20s for like rent money. Imagine that. Imagine if you work your ass off at really incredible works of art. And Anthony Burgess is a brilliant writer. Like, any of you out there, read some of Anthony Burgess's later novels. They are brilliant. They are better than A Clockwork Orange by a wide margin. And A Clockwork Orange is a great book. I really like that book. But like, Anthony Burgess is a brilliant author and he spent the rest of his career just sitting here going like, yes, okay, tell me, like, ask me your, ask me your 20 questions about Alex from A Clockwork Orange so that we can actually get to my fucking book, <laughs> please. But he kept doing it because he loved writing. And he kept doing it until he was an old man because he loved sure. writing. I'm sitting here like, would you be mad if George, R- like, okay, if George R. R. Martin just retired, what if he just was like, hey, I made all the money I need, I'm having fun, I'm just going to retire, like, uh, I'm sorry, but I don't have this in me, or what if he said that, you know, it was taking a toll on his health or something like that? If he said that, I would completely change my stance, I would absolutely understand, and I wanted, I'm glad you, you, uh, you pitched this up for me so I can bring it up to bat that would totally change my viewpoint or you know if in five ten years george r R. martin in an interview when the whole story's said and done says you know yeah i really i i really grew to hate the the whole thing after a while or or i i loved it when it was a book and uh, i really grew to hate it after it became a tv show if he said anything like that um my stance would completely change he hasn't and I'm only left with the evidence available to me, which is him going on uh, talk shows and him um, in interviews talking about being the executive producer on the show. And at the same time, if you go to George R. R. Martin's website, one of the first things you'll see on it is an announcement that the book has been delayed and will not be coming out until at least 2019. Um, you know, interviews mm-hmm. of of George R. R. Martin saying that, yeah, the, the, the manuscript is in my desk somewhere and it's like 2000 pages at this point, And it's, it's really, it, it's, it's just a lot. And, and like to, to bring this into the personal side of it and to draw this into personally, maybe I'm just really butthurt that I, talked big game about reading all the books ahead of time and knowing that the red wedding was coming before it actually happened and knowing uh, most of the characters fates before anyone else did and i didn't like that that got turned around on me as somebody who hasn't been watching the show as it's been coming out because i i I staked my claim to the books damn it Maybe that's where I'm at, and maybe that's not fair to George R. R. Martin. I don't know what I would have done in his place. I can't honestly sit here and say the morality, the the moral writer thing to do is to stay loyal to my book fans and to pump out the books. And because because I mean I mean maybe maybe he's worried that'll spoil the ending of the TV show, or 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 I don't know. Um, you know, if he had retired, if he had. It, it, if he had passed the books off to somebody else and had somebody else write the last two books, I, I'm sure some people would have been upset with that, but I would have been fine with it because clearly he knew where the story was going. He had to, to tell the show writers the story's there. He just didn't sure. put it in book. And now it's too late. Now, now I don't know if I'm going to read it. 
the last two books because by by uh, Christmas 2019, the story is going to be over. And you can make the argument that the plot is slightly different, but the broad strokes, the place where all these characters are going to end up, that is supposed to be the same between um, both uh, both TV and book. So I think there's 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 a lot he could have done. Retire give the books to somebody else, make some sort of statement about his health, and I wouldn't be on his case so much. But it it has always grinded my gears ever since. Um, like, like because people kind of saw this coming years ago, and, and I saw it coming too, and I started to get worried. It, it really ground my gears to see the guy going on Letterman and laughing about how many sex scenes he's written and at the same time tweeting out that, hey, the book's going to be delayed. I'm going to offer you two thoughts. I'm going to offer you I'm going to offer you something that is a bit of a warning and something that I hope will be a comfort to you. OK. And then I love your final thoughts before we move on. So my warning to you is keep an eye on the Star Wars fans right now. Oh, yeah. Jeez. The fans, the idea of what fans are owed because of what something meant to them in the past is beautiful a lot of the time and so easily made toxic you know we don't we don't own the art the way that i think a lot of people seem to feel that we do and i love i love star wars i love star wars to quote Mulaney more than certain dead relatives of mine <laughs> and star wars is one of the things that like de- helped define me in my upbringing. And I have seen Star Wars through some horrible moments and I've seen it through some incredible moments and it's meant so much to me. And when I see what that fandom is in some awful people's hands, it freaks me out. So when when you talk about like watching George R. R. Martin doing this that or the other, Think about what people were saying about George Lucas at a certain point. Mm. Think about what people are saying about Kathleen Kennedy, Ryan Johnson, J.J. Abrams, people touching this and what they feel they're owed because of their past with it. So that's my warning. And then my point of comfort is you say you'd be fine if George R. R. Martin passed this on. I promise you, Andrew. (laughs) I promise you. If George R. R. Martin dies without finishing these books, someone will go through his papers and someone will finish it the same way they did with the extended universes of Lord of the Rings after J.R.R. Tolkien's death, the same way they did with Robert Jordan's works, the same way they did with H.P. Lovecraft, the same way they do with tons of these guys. They'll go through the notes They'll write it. Maybe it won't be the same book George R. R. Martin would have written, but you'll get your books, probably by some fairly competent authors who are hired to do something for the people that they know will buy these books. Okay. Yeah. So I offer you that comfort. Well, thank you for offering me that comfort, and thank you for the warning. I I hadn't thought about that. Um, I promise you listeners, uh, I will not be drafting the anti the anti-Game of Thrones manuscript. Um, I will not be putting my name on the declaration uh, to remake the final season of Game of Thrones. 
um, because that shit's insane. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You do. You do inspire um, something we can talk about at a later time. My thoughts on the girl with the dragon tattoo series, and especially the girl in the spider's web, um, which is the one Stieg Larson didn't write. Uh, but that will be for another time. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I'm down for that. I have not read those books. Oh, I, I did see books. the... I saw the Scandinavian version of the first movie. <laughs> I never saw the Daniel Craig version. The Daniel Craig, Mooney, Ra- Rudy yes, Mara the, version. The, like, I the haven't seen that The beautiful, amazing David Finchner directed uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which they released on Christmas Day for some stupid reason and bombed the American trilogy. And... And I'm going to hold this in for another hate, but they, there you go. Two previews for things okay. Andy has opinions on. <laughs> okay, I'm All in. Right. Uh, you good to yes, move on? Yes, in, in what has already become our longest episode, but oh well, it's our podcast. Let's move on to the question. Suck it, dumb shits, <laughs> as a BoJack Horseman reference. All right, I do want to remind people... That we are taking questions at our email at lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com. The questions are starting to flow in uh, that way as opposed to us hunting them down over Facebook or Twitter or or Meet Space World. Um, And we have uh, our first email question uh, coming in this week. And here is that. Hey, guys, here's my question. A majority of my current friend group is made up of co-workers from my touring company. I love this current setup. I love both working with and doing fun things and creative projects with these people. I've been touring with this company for the past three seasons, and though some people have come and gone, a big group of us have stuck together. Unfortunately, I have a new job offer, and my time with the tour might be coming to an end. How can I leave this job but stay friends with these people? They'll be off every weekend next year making new memories and adding friends to the group, surely new employees that I won't know. I've seen a couple of people that I would have once called among my closest friends leave the company and now are almost completely out of touch with them. Uh, We all are. How do I not become one of them? Sincerely, New Yorker who hates new friends. I'm walking here! Delightful. Um, Andy, you want to take the spearhead on this one, or should I? Go right ahead, my man. Okay. So, um, New Yorker. I... Right now is arguably the best time to have a problem like this. Uh, I, I know that on the surface, an answer like that may feel unsatisfactory. But I, 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 I live my life in an interesting way. I still keep, at the very least, very loose touch with so many people that I arguably would not have otherwise. Uh, in October, uh, I'm actually going to the wedding of a friend of mine who I literally met when we were five years old. We were in the same kindergarten class, played on the same soccer field. We were really, really close friends as small children. Uh, Drifted apart a lot in middle school and high school. We we saw each other on occasion, would catch up here and there. We haven't talked a whole lot in the last probably decade or so, but 
through other mutual friends, through very occasional meetups, uh, through Facebook. Honestly, a lot of Facebook. Uh, we've kept touch. We honestly have. Uh, would I call him my closest friend right now? No. I, and I don't think he'd be offended by my saying that, but he's been one of the very... He's been a friend who I've had a very long history with, who I keep loose touch with. And I and I'm going to his friggin' wedding next month. I've got another friend who I met at a conference five years ago, five, six years ago. She came to my wedding. Uh, she remains a very close confidant of mine. She and I have never been... We, we've met face-to-face -face maybe half a dozen times. But we text pretty frequently. We tweet at each other pretty frequently. We tag each other on Facebook constantly. We're, we're in really regular, really regular communication with each other. I call her a very, very dear friend. Since I moved after graduate school, I have kept ties with a dozen or so really wonderful people who kind of saved my life in graduate school, uh, who were this incredibly close, deep uh, community that I built for myself. Now, here's the thing. I had to make a lot of effort to do that, and they have to make effort to do that. I haven't been able to keep relationships like that with everyone. Uh, I haven't, and I've chosen not to with a lot of people. Some people I'm okay with that kind of casual connection. It's just kind of a matter of what you're willing to do and what they're willing to do. Communication is key. Communication, letting them know ahead of time, hey, I sincerely want to keep touch with you. Not in that vague, like, oh, let's, let's keep in touch, but, like, actually, seriously, make a point of scheduling things, of making those regular communications. I've got friends who I just... That, like we have Facebook reminders or Google reminders like oh hey text such and such person just to like follow up with them see how they're doing like oh I like that these there are ways to keep these relationships going but you have to accept that a it might not be reciprocated and that's not something you should like dislike of other people that's kind of the natural order for a lot of folks some people are very good at letting other people go uh, it's it's a survival mechanism or, you know, maintaining some relationships can be exhausting. But if you take active measures, uh, maybe we can go over a list of those uh, before we close out here. I do want to give Andy a chance to talk. Um, those measures can be taken. They just can't be taken casually. They can't. You don't fall into maintaining long distance relationships or 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 relationships that with people you don't see very often, like it, it, it can't be done casually. It has to be done deliberately with planning, with intention and with communication on both ends. Yeah. So that's, that's my opening salvo. Yeah. I, I agree with a lot of that. Um, I can speak to uh, the intentionality part of it by telling a story uh, back in high school. I was Mr. Drama club and drama was my life. Nerd. Yeah. Um, to the point... I was with you, no worries. To the point where um, if you weren't in the drama club, you weren't my friend. And if we were friends and you decided to stop doing drama, 
we probably weren't friends after that because it was just, it was so much my life. And the only kind of exception was the people like Alex who uh, graduated and, and didn't fall in the same uh, bubble in my brain. Um, and I, and so I was very insular with my friendships and very, very, um, it was, it was very much a proximity thing for me. I was, I was friends with the people I was close with and interacted in my day to day with and not friends with the people that I didn't. And it took, um, you know, it took going into college and kind of, uh, falling out of drama, at least as much as I had been obsessed with it. And, um, it took me getting to be friends with a friend group and going through the struggles of not seeing uh, any given one of them sometimes for months at a time and always feeling really guilty about that. And, and, and really, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a real problem for me until finally somebody said, you know, it doesn't matter how much I see you. It matters how we react with each other when we do hang out. You know, I don't need to see you every week. To, to, to think you're a great person and be your friend and love on you. And that really stuck with me. Um, so all of that to say, I know where you're coming from. And I think a couple of the other things you can do is, you know, try to re-examine your stance on it. Uh, I know you're fearful that you've seen other people leave the storing company and kind of drop off the map. That doesn't have to be your story. That doesn't have to be what happens with you. And and yeah, people are going to go off and, and make new memories and make inside jokes that you're not going to be a part of, but that doesn't prevent you from in your time that you can spend with these folks, you know, building, reinforcing your own bonds and connections and such. Um, and you know, you're, you, you, you put in the byline, uh, you know, you hate making new friends. I would hope you're going to make some new friends at this new job. Um, you know, I, I tend to be friendly with at least some of the people I work with and can count some of them <laughs> as friends. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would hope that you, <laughs> that you would be able to as well and not just, uh, not, not let it be just business for these people that are, going to be in your life yeah and i mean i love that you say that andy and i want to build on a point and a point there which is uh some of this you will need to be realistic about uh you don't you know you don't go into any great detail about any of the individual friendships you have with any particular members of this group and that's okay you don't really need to but the thing I think about, uh, and thing I hope you're thinking about as you listen to this, is um, go through some of those friendships in your head, um, just person by person. I think you have an instinct for who will maybe be more likely to fall off, and who won't be, who might be receptive to regular contact, or not regular contact, who you're closer to. Um, you know, the, the guy I've called my best friend since I was nine years old, Nick, um, who was the best man at my wedding, we don't talk sometimes for weeks or months at a time. But I go down to visit, and I will sit in the bed of his truck, we'll open a beer, and it's like we hung out the day yeah. before. That's just the relationship that he and I have. Compare that to um, 
other person who I've called my best friend since I was 10, David, who we've already talked about here. David and I talk, like, we text each other every day or every other day. You know, we're, we're, we're communicating all the time. Not to say that if we didn't do that, you know, he and I would fall off, but it's just the kind of relationship that he and I have. You need to look at a lot of these relationships on an individual basis and understand that, you know, you're, I assume you're an adult. I assume these are other adults. Adult relationships are complicated. They fall off. They Sometimes they fall off for no one's real fault. Like, people get busy. People aren't great at, you know, texting or keeping touch or meeting up, you know? And that that just happens, Yeah. you know? So I, I do hope that you approach this realistically. I don't, I don't want you to think it's hopeless. It's not hopeless. It just, again, requires you to have a really level head about it and intentionality. I, I, I would totally recommend try and keep touch with everybody. But if somebody falls off, don't let it break your heart, you know? Like, instead, put that energy to the people who are communicating with you, who are remaining your friends, who who are maintaining the relationship because some of them may surprise you and some of them may end up growing even closer. You never you never really know until you're in the situation. Yeah, and I mean you are you are in New York or at least the New York area um unless that was just a purely random nickname. Um you are in a place where you can hang out at 2 in the morning if you really want to and go get some pizza or go to a club or go to a coffee shop and listen to whatever music is playing. I guarantee you there's music playing at two in the morning in a New York coffee shop. Um, both, both uh, digitally and personally, you're in a place where it's stuff. There's stuff you can do. There's, there's ways you can hang out with people. There's ways you can keep these relationships. But I think, the thing that really is going to help you is by learning and accepting that it is okay if you don't keep all of them. Um, I have a friend who pretty much all of our, the, the extent of our reaction ever since uh, she moved out of town is we send each other dog pictures when we see a cute dog and that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, Alex, you and I were, were on the same level where we wouldn't talk for weeks, usually months on end. And, you know, I, we didn't really talk about it, but that kind of bothered me until, uh, you know, something changed. I, I, I wanted to bring up this point just because maybe you don't, maybe some of these people fall out. Um, eventually that doesn't mean they're going to stay out of your lives forever. You know, like that's a really good yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. You know, we we were in a place where we really weren't interacting all that much, um, and then we 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 hung out, and it was like no time had passed, and we we did a thing where now the situation has changed. So I guess what I'm saying, New York, is start a podcast. <laughs> Oh, it God. really is the garage band of of the new age. You saw that in one tweet, and you've been like just dining out on that joke yep. ever since. Yes, I have. Yeah. No, I mean, at, at, you know what? It could be. You know, you say this is a touring company, so I assume that you're, you know, in some kind of creative situation. 
you got people you can forge a creative relationship with, please, by all means, like, and, and if we do want to segue into strategies, that could be a really yeah. fun one, you know? You, you never really know with some of this stuff. I, I, if it's a touring company, I don't know if this is a theater company, a music company, um, a band, or I don't know what the situation is, but if you're creatives, creatives love to start projects maybe they don't finish them but at the very least they start yeah, them. and maybe it's about the journey so, not the destination yeah absolutely um something that really worked for i think you and me was we the two of us as well as a number of our other friends right after uh stephanie and i left orlando we started a group yes. chat with a bunch of our friends uh, which, you know, ostensibly was supposed to be about everyone post your adventure of the day. And while that purpose for it has largely fallen off, uh, it worked for a good long while. And we still talk on that thread yeah. occasionally. Like, we're still sending messages to each other at least every few weeks, maybe, keeping touch with each other. And that little bit of contact, there's just that little, like, occasional opening up a window and shouting something at your at your friend you know from from across a screen it it keeps some of these relationships alive in a certain way and yeah when i go down to orlando i hang out with you guys you know we spend the first hour catching up and then afterwards it's like i it's like i never just shoot the shit it's legitimately like yeah we're right back to where we were now granted with this friend group is people who've known each some some of us have known each other god like decades practically me and kelly and me me and kelly and stephanie have known each other for 13 14 years at this yeah. point like it's been a bit <laughs> um oh god no it's almost wait august like i think in august it'll officially be yeah, for, now 14 years, so... Yeah, but that's that's a long friggin'... That's basically half of my life that I've known some of these people. And some of you guys came along a little later. Andy, you came along a couple years later. Um, you know, yeah. and, and and that's okay. But the point is, like, that was, that was one little thing that we did that keeps us connected. And it's a surprising thing. You, it's not intuitive, but it worked really really well yeah um i think there is a a anxiety throughout a lot of uh people our age and younger today to start the conversation and to quote unquote bother my friends with wanting to hang out and one of the things you can do is take that anxiety and do your best to crumple it up in a ball and eat it and be the one who you know reaches out and isn't afraid to reach out yeah i mean none of us want to be rejected i think a lot of it comes down to that we don't want to be rejected when we send someone a message and they maybe don't reply back sometimes for hours uh or days or at all um, we might invite somebody out to something. You don't, it, it's, I'm, and I'm shit at this. Like, I'm terrible at organizing plans or starting plans or asking people to hang out because I have a crippling fear that they're going to be like, ew, no, you're gross, go away. Um, because in many ways, I'm still that chubby little shy kid on the playground. Um, um, I, I, I think that's very true, but um, 
I, I think that's a very good point. And I mean, obviously the anxiety is there for a reason. No, nobody wants to. The worst thing you can do is, is try to do this and have it fall flat. But I think it's better to try than not. It's, it's a, there's a potential for this to not work or there is a certainty for this to not work. Um, and, and like we said before, yeah. uh, one of the things you can do is steal yourself that maybe not everybody is going to stay in your friend circle, but I think it's likely, especially that you've, uh, especially that you've already been friends with these people that at least some of them will be receptive and excited to, to still be your friend, you know? And, and again, just be proactive, you know, I, I know that again to use to use my lovely wife as an example. She has a good friend who she has a monthly phone date with. This friend lives in a whole other state, but they talk on the phone once a month, and they've been friends since they were kids. She has another friend who she has like a monthly hangout with. They call it a friend date, and they'll just meet up somewhere and go for a walk or grab coffee or something. Um, and those are relationships that she's very intentional about keeping and keeping up with. And strategies like that sounds kind of hippy-dippy. They sound, well, let's be fair. They sound vulnerable and sincere, which is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> it is terrifying to be vulnerable and sincere. And those are the best friendships. Yeah. The best friendships are not the ones who you have the most fun with. Or who always have a great story. Those are good friendships. Those can be very good friendships. The best friendships are the ones where you can express some vulnerability. And there's reception there. And there is that back and forth. So, you know, if you've got someone who you think may be even remotely receptive to an idea like that. And that's something you want to invest in. Do it, you know. Go do a creative thing or like a fun thing. I think we we had a earlier episode where we were trying to give someone advice on making new friends, and we told him things like uh, this. God, who was this? Um, this was like we gave. Oh, yeah, Doogie. This was Doogie. We gave him. We gave him Doogie Hauser. Uh, we told him like start going to like trivia nights and maybe play some like do, maybe do some video yeah. game stuff and. And go pursue these interests. If you're in the same town as these people, do that. That sounds like fun. Like go, like go do an event, even if it's just like regularly going to a karaoke night or a trivia night or a, just a hangup where y'all just meet and shoot the shit and drink or have coffee or just chill or go for a walk or go for a run or whatever you all actually enjoy. Um, just do it, you know, and, and and be intentional about that. Make make a Facebook group where all of you are in it and you set up events like be proactive. Yeah. If these relationships matter to you, they're going to involve effort. And the people who will meet you with that effort are going to be the best people to keep around generally. Absolutely. Um, and. I think I, I think Alex has put a lot of great stuff out there that I didn't even think about. You know, uh, we live in the social age. Use it to your advantage. Use it to 
create a space where everybody can talk to everybody else. Um, you know, I, I, I know for a fact you uh, are a big theater person. I know for a fact you are a big improv person um, and you're in New York. So there's always going to be an improv show to go to. Um, oh, my God. Why did you say it was improv <laughs> in New York? Like, where it? what day doesn't have an improv night in New York? Right. Like, you have too many options, right? So, so there there are things you can do, and 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 internally for you, New Yorker, um, I really want you to hold on to the notion that you don't need to see these people all of the time to stay as good a friend as you are with them. Absolutely, so. it's when you're an adult, friendship looks a lot of different ways, uh, and some of those are very surprising. Surprising in their intensity, surprising in their frequency, surprising in ways you can never imagine. And honestly, it just kind of takes being brave enough to take the step forward to try and, you know, take some control of that, but also having the faith that it'll come back to you in some capacity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we really hope this helps. um, And we will be reaching out to see how you're doing and... Uh, I know that you're going to be able to keep these friendships and I know it's going to work out for you. And yeah. with that, uh, all right. Um, congratulations. You, you made it. You made it dear listener um, to the end of our show. <laughs> <laughs> this one has been a marathon. Um, so oh. we, this is, this has been love hate relationship. And uh, I want to remind everybody yeah. again, um, you can email us your questions at love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com. And uh, we will promise that as long as it is about a relationship, we will happily answer it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can also tweet us at LHR pod. That's L H R P O D. Uh, with any of your questions, and you can follow us there to keep up with new episodes. And I have to say, I am very proud of that Twitter feed. At least once a day, I put up something that I legitimately find funny, and I hope that you assholes also find it funny. <laughs> yes, uh, we're, we're, we're big on Twitter, and we love the Twitter, and we would love to see you on Twitter. Uh, you can also find us at our website, lovehaterelationship.net. You can find us at all of the places Alex mentioned at the beginning of the show. You can follow me, Andy Bowell, at jovocop2113 on Twitter. And I'm A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me on both. Uh, I am just as funny on my Twitter, uh, and my Instagram is mostly uh, weightlifting videos and pictures of me and my wife drinking. So uh, it's quite enjoyable, uh, I must say. Quality content all around. Uh, And uh, as (laughs) always... Jesus, I need to go to bed. Okay. Um, Thank you for... Thank you for listening, everyone. And uh, as always, please, please, please tell your enemies. Uh, as do I. <laughs>